Hey, it's good to be back with you. Um, I just flew back. Uh, our team is still in Guatemala or on the way back. I flew back a day early uh, to be with your beautiful faces. Um, or I led the team so unsuccessfully that they all stayed in Guatemala, and I'm the only one that came back to you. Um, but it was a great trip. Uh, next week, we'll give a report about all that God did and hopefully show you a video and, and allow some testimonies of what went down in Guatemala last week. But this week, uh, I actually want to preach to you something that I also preached in Guatemala to the gathering of your brothers and sisters that are there. And that is, I want to preach something that we preach all the time. Matter of fact, I could argue that failure to preach the cross or the grace of God or the sacrifice of Jesus for sin uh, changes your sermon from a sermon to a TED Talk. And while TED Talks can be informative, they're not transformative. Does that make sense? And so what separates us in sermons is that we are preaching the power of God unto salvation when we articulate to you the gospel. And when I lay that before you, the Holy Spirit comes and the hearts of dead sinners like us regenerates us such that we respond to the gospel and we respond to God in worship. And so the cross has got to be everywhere. I can argue that every book of the Bible has a scarlet thread of blood that leads us to the cross. And so it's just convenient as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark that we've come now to the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you've heard of like Christmas in July, well, like we're going to try a little Good Friday on this Good Sunday, all right? And so here's the deal. I think that the problem as I even lead in talking about the cross for most of us, is that you've been in Sunday school, you've been in Awanas, and here's what you've rolled upon. You've seen a flannel graph, a sticker with a purple, beautiful cartoon cross on it. And you put that on your paper. And you've got uh, shirts that you've worn that have a cross on them. I ain't knocking that, all right? Represent that. You've got a necklace, you've got a chain, you've got, apparently made of gold, if you're Dave, um, you've got jewelry of the cross. And it can become a plaything, or we can be so overstimulated with images of the cross that are sanitized, that it loses its effect of what it really looked like. Like, have you ever thought about the fact that Awana's or Sunday school uses stickers of the cross, and metal bands from the 80s use the cross. Right? Like they had symbol, it was skulls and crosses. And if you compare the two biblically, like Guns N' Roses is closer to representing what the cross was than Sunday school. And now, now I'm not arguing that we put up Guns N' Roses pop posters for Iwana. Or maybe I am. We've got a new regime. Wait a is, is it open? But metal bands drew on the imagery the grossness of the execution tool that was the cross to talk about their music and this heaviness and the seriousness and all of that kind of scary stuff. But they're, they're just closer than your stickers. So I, I say this, as, as, we, as we dive into this, I, I think there's an overstimulation that's going to cause us a sense of familiarity, and that familiarity can breed within us contempt, it can. It doesn't have to, but it can. Contempt or even 
perversion where we make the cross of Jesus into something that's clean. Do you hear me? Something clean, something easy, something familiar. And, and we just, we cannot, as Christians, afford to do that. We can't, can't afford to. Because do you realize what makes you a Christian is the Christ on the cross? That if we take that message and we pervert it, even in iota, we are no longer Christians. Like it's the cross that saves. We can't play games here. We can't, we can't agree to disagree here. It's not secondary. It's primary. It's a close-handed issue. Because even from where I can throw a rock right now, we can get someone who redefines the central message of Christianity into something that is not the Son of God entering into humanity as a man to die on the cross for sins. I can hit that cult from here. And I ain't got a cannon. We can talk about what separates us from Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons. Is the message of salvation in the cross. It's, it's critical. It's the acid test. Are you with me? When we go to Guatemala and we meet people who profess to be believers... Or, when we as elders interview church members, we, we have the same parameter for judging, are they a brother? We say, tell me the gospel. Because if you ain't got the gospel, we don't have the cross to unite us. That's how critical our message is to what we're doing here. It is the power of salvation to all who believe. So, uh, probably today... There's going to be less stories and illustrations and parables and examples that I try to do. My heart is to make the cross and what happened to Jesus explicit, clear, vivid. To turn ears into eyes, all windows, gaze at the cross, and then for you to make a decision about it. So if you would, let's prepare our hearts in prayer to go into God's word. Would you bow? Would you humble yourself? Would you pray? Dear Heavenly Father... We enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you. Because you are the one, the only one, that could cure and fix what we broke. You're the only one that could save us. You're the one that, though all majesty and glory belongs to you, you became a man, humbled yourself to the point of death on the cross that we might be saved. So praise be to your name forever and ever and ever and ever. God, help us not to skip or run ramshot over the cross. Help us to sink our teeth into it. Help us to wrap our arms around it. Help us to sing as we get closer to it. God, would you enable my brothers and sisters to hear the word that has been read, hear the word preached, hear the word saying in such a way that they know you, they encounter you, they repent of sin, believe and are saved. God, this is your time, so come be the good shepherd, the teacher, the pastor. This is your church. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Mark 15, we're going to start in verse 15, but look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Matthew. Luke and John, 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parallel them. So there's going to be times where I'm going to reference different Gospels to talk about it. In addition, I want to give you a little bit of a historical perspective of other things around crucifixion so that you understand the way that the original readers would have understand what crucifixion is. Because I would argue that this is something that you have never seen in your daily life. So I want to kind of take all of those. But let's jog a little bit. We've come now to the passion of the Christ, no Mel Gibson, in the Mark account of what Jesus did. Nothing in all of the Gospels gets a more disproportionate treatment than the last week of Jesus' life. The passion of Christ gets 40% of the Gospel writer's attention. And what we've said before is this is the full treatment. And just by volume, God the Holy Spirit is wanting you, if you see nothing else from the Gospels, to zoom in right here at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we, we talked about in the last couple weeks that he had been betrayed by a pretend friend for 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. He was betrayed by this friend, and we just talked about how that kind of like turns the knife a little extra. When you have people that you think you should trust, and they backstab you, it turns the knife, doesn't it? The 30 pieces of silver, though prophesied, is a equivalent for being sold out for a few hundred bucks, or the price of a slave. He then goes and through a kangaroo court of an illegal trial, beginning with three-part trial amongst the Jews and then extending to a three-part trial amongst the Gentiles. We said that within this trial, the Jews were trying to get the to do their dirty work, and Pilate, the leader of the, the Roman proconsul, is coming, trying to get somebody else to make this decision about Jesus for him. Because he's going to come and say, I find no guilt in him. But I'm still going to condemn him. And he's going to say to the same like, what are we doing here? Then he's going to come to the crowd, what are we doing? And he's like, so many people who attend church over and over, they come here and they look for somebody else to make a decision about Jesus for them. You and you alone have to make a decision about Jesus. Is he king or is he a criminal? Well, I find no guilt in him. Okay. Pilate found no guilt in him and saw his perfection, still judged him wrongly. What are you going to do with Jesus? And so we just kind of let that, that question land on us and sit there. And so they had this custom in the Roman provinces of amnesty for a criminal because it made the government look merciful. Doesn't mean the government is merciful. Good luck with that. Government's ethic is justice. They're terrible at mercy. All right? What they wanted to appear was merciful so that it would, it would dissuade the crowd from rebellion. And so Pilate comes now in verse 15, and it says, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. He's a people pleaser. Unless he takes a poll, he will never make a decision on what's right. Released for them Barabbas, Barabbas, and they, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So this is going to take a little bit of treatment. Barabbas was exchanged, and we learn in Luke's gospel that he was a prominent prisoner and that he was a murderer. A murderer was exchanged for the author of life. His name, Barabbas, means son of the father. And what's curious about that is that Jesus, the son of the father, is being substituted for Barabbas, the son of another father. 
Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, substituted for the sons of Adam. Exchange. This guy is probably less William Wallace and more Lee Harvey Oswald. And that dude's going to walk free. And the only one who has ever walked this planet with perfection is going to be condemned to die. The Son of God became Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The cross is the pulpit where God preaches to you His sermon of love. All of God's attributes meet at the cross. You see at the cross God's justice and that he, as a holy God and a righteous God, must punish sin. The cross is not arbitrary. It's necessary. God must hold sin accountable or he's not righteous or he's not good. But at the cross we also see the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God who himself bore our penalty for our crimes such that he loved us in this way. It's the pulpit where Christ preached his sermon of love. It's a great trade. Here, God carved in history his love for sinners that any passerby might know. Um, In the news, maybe one illustration. In the news this week, I thought it was really fascinating. Um, because there's a WNBA star named Brittany Griner who went to Russia, of all places, and smoked weed and took weed with her into Russia. Now, I know that some people don't travel very often, but you know, like taking drugs into other countries, or just into Russia, period. Like, pump the brakes on that, all right? It's like your check bag. It's like, how did you, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And so she is in Russia, and got arrested. I know none of you watched the WNBA. Y'all don't even know who I'm talking about. Okay? So, like, in Russia. And she gets arrested. And she's tripping because she's like, well, you know, like, weed's legal in America. And like, yeah, but you're in somebody else's country with other rules. And they have her in there. And so she's been, like, her lawyer um, contacting, you know, different movie players or stuff to lobby to get her released. She's even to the president now. Um, lobbying for the president to do this. Now, what's curious about this is that she has made comments previously where she hates America, the country she's from. She detests America. But now, she's arrested in Russia, and she's begging America to come bail her out. What our government, in its wisdom, has decided is that we're going to exchange a Russian war criminal for a WNBA player. And that trade is on ESPN, which is also kind of hilarious. What's weird about this is if there's people right now in America in prison for weed. For weed. But somebody in prison in Russia, we're exchanging a Russian war criminal for somebody arrested for weed. This is the most banana situation in the world. But here's what we're going to do. We want this person back. And in order to get them back, we got to trade... A Russian war criminal. That's a Barabbas for a Barabbas. And that person hates the country that's having to come deliver them. This is a beautiful 
picture of exactly the exchange that's going on in the Bible, except it's too weak. Because you are the lawbreakers in God's country, and you want forgiven of your penalties without any blood or any cost. You want set free just arbitrarily. And the world hates the God trying to free them. But instead of God sending another Barabbas to exchange for a Barabbas, some Russian war criminal, instead to take our place, we got Jesus. We got Jesus sent for us. It's the great exchange that Luther said, it's unbelievable and what makes the gospel so beautiful is that I exchange my sin for Christ's righteousness. It's what makes this so potent and powerful. So that's the lead up. And then it says that they had already, they'd already worked him over a little bit. And then now they're going to beat him and scourge him. This whole episode is going to last about six hours on Friday. Okay? At 8.30 a.m., he's already had an all-nighter. So if you've ever stayed up all night and realized how grouchy you are the next day, Jesus has been up all night dealing with these trials where the East and the West meet. Jews and Gentiles have conspired together to execute their creator. They have um, betrayed him. They have accused him. They have beaten him. They have mocked him. They have plucked his beard. So any of the dads in here, when you had a newborn and just ripped your facial hair out till it bled, you get it. He's been spit on. Which I know there's men in this room that if another man spit on you, it would be, that's, that's like, you would either, forget going out and fighting each other, you're going to pull pistols and duel. Right? They spit on him. And let's say that. That's the warm-up. That's the chips and salsa appetizer where Jesus is at right now when we join this. Now it's saying that he is beaten by a Roman battalion. They had a game that we learned from history where they would circle up around an individual. They would blindfold that individual and they would punch that individual from one side of the circle to the other. Right? This kind of bull in the ring thing. You never see the punches coming. And listen, this is not some computer nerd, soy boy with like no biceps. We're talking 101st Airborne, Navy SEALs, professional executors, Roman military individuals like throwing fists on our Jesus. He's beaten to a pulp. He's been tenderized and beaten the way that you tenderize meat before your barbecue. He's been mocked. They says in the scriptures that they dressed him in a purple robe. They gave him a reed as a scepter and sometimes beat it with him. They paid him false homage and would bow to him in fake worship. Here's what they just did. They made Jesus into a parody. They mock him like Hollywood does right now. They turned Jesus into an SNL skit. He is a joke to them. And they disrespect him. Then it says that they scourged him. Most of us don't understand what scourging is. It was lethal in and of itself, such that the Jews limited that you couldn't scourge somebody more than 40 times. They would try to do 39 just in case somebody lost count and someone ended up dying under the scourging. The scourging had like an Indiana Jones type whip handle with strips of leather that came from it. It had metal balls 
or pieces of bone or shrapnel that they would tie to the end. They would tie someone's hands down to a post and they would rip the back off of the individual. So if he's been tenderized by the punches, now he's going to get shredded like you do meat. The meat of his back is going to be completely exposed. In history, from what we learn of scourging, that they would have a competition among soldiers that when they would scourge him, they would sink the hooks in and then try to rip as much flesh as possible off of his back. Entrails, blood vessels, organs would all be exposed by scourging. There would be, after 40 lashes by professionals, there would be no back left. There's even accounts in history that the scourging was so deep that they would lock one of the hooks into one of the ribs and rip, and a rib would go flying through the air as they scourged the, the back of an individual. It was a bloody mess that the Romans turned into sport. Then the account that was read earlier says that he goes into crucifixion. Crucifixion was considered the most painful and horrifying death that an individual could have because it was not meant to just be pain. It was meant to be embarrassing, shameful, derogatory. Matter of fact, in English, we have a word called excruciating. If we roll our ankle, we say it's excruciating pain on a scale of 1 to 10. It's not 10, it's 25. It's excruciating. Excruciating. X means from or of. Excruciating. From the cross. Excruciating as a word describes something as from the cross. There's no higher language that we have in English to describe something more painful. It's excruciating. Cicero, the Roman historian, said that it is unbecoming. It is bad manners for a Roman even to mention crucifixion. Josephus talked of its shame, the Jewish historian, and said it was the most wretched of deaths. Its origins began in Persia. In Persia, um, they impaled people. And they would just put them as a signpost up. The Persians began it, but the Romans perfected it. To where they would not only um, attach them to a stick and leave them there, they would staple them there to bleed out slowly. This would continue until 300 AD, until Constantine's conversion in the Roman Empire, where he would end crucifixion. You're familiar with a character that's connected to impaling or crucifixion. Vlad the Impaler in Eastern Europe, when his lands were invaded, he resurrected crucifixion in order to impale his enemies on the road as others would march in. He became the backdrop of the monster Dracula. Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, same person. That's how horrifying this was. Crucifixion was state-sponsored terrorism. It was a deterrent. It was the original cancel culture. They pinned bodies up on stakes like billboards telling you not to mess with their power. It was like a public hanging out here in the Wild West. It was capital punishment with a memo. It had a message attached to it. If you've seen the movie uh, Spartacus, um, you you get this idea. Like Spartacus um, fell in his rebellion and he had 6,000 followers that they crucified in a single day. 6,000 followers 120 mile stretch. That's about the equivalent of from Bayfield, 
where you're at right now to Montrose, 6,000 bodies. Imagine we all get up from here and we all walk from Bayfield to Montrose, 120 miles. There's only like two people in here that can make that walk. It's fair, okay? We walk that and instead of seeing mile markers, we see another body on another cross, on another cross, on another cross. And the question is, is do you get the message that the cross was trying to say? 6,000 bodies here to Montrose, 120 miles. It was a massive deterrent. The Bible is unbelievably curious in this. Even a thousand years before you could argue crucifixion is invented, Deuteronomy has this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And a lot of Jewish scholars have no idea what to do with that verse. Except that it anticipated the fact that the Messiah would hang on a cross and take our curse. Furthermore, Isaiah 53, I've talked with Jews in Israel about this. They don't know what to do with this verse. It's that he was beaten for our transgressions and punished for our iniquities. Well, who is it? Can't be Israel, can't be this. Who is taking our punishment and beating? It anticipated the beatings of Roman soldiers. Go next level with this. We're gonna, Jesus is going to quote this from the cross. Have you ever read Psalm 22? It describes not only the fact that they're going to gamble for his clothes, but it says that they pierced his hands and feet, describing the nailing of crucifixion hundreds of years before it's even invented. So if you're a lost person here, David's prophesying that. Doesn't know exactly what it talked about in the original context, but it looks forward to a system of killing people that's not even on human history's radar yet. So what do you do with that? The Bible anticipated the crucifixion of Jesus. As they led him away from the scourging with an exposed back and open wound on his back, they required him to carry a what would be equivalent to a railroad cross beam. And so for us, you can see this one here. This one's very clean. Theirs was not clean. They recycled the wood. Why get new pieces of wood to kill more people? They'd use the same wood over and again. The cross beam that Jesus carried is applied as a coarse object to an open wound. And you complain about your splinters. Imagine these. This crossbeam likely would have had urine, sweat, blood, tears, excrement from previous crucifixions. And he's now applied it to his open wound and is required to carry it up a hill. On your best day when you get like 12 hours of sleep and you've had a full belly, right? Plenty of rest. You're alert. You've had six cups of coffee. You're ready for the day. Carrying a crossbeam like this up a hill would be difficult. Some of you do it as entertainment or working out, doing your CrossFit thing, right? You got to Chris Krug that thing up the hill. On your best day, how much blood has Jesus lost before the crosses or the crossbeams ever put to his back and then commanded to walk? This is why in the next account, if you look um, down here in verse 21, they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. This is awesome, and I, I hope you hear this. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is that in the Bible? Why is his kid's name in the Bible? To carry his cross. 
This is, this is unbelievable information that would not be here if this is mythology. This is historical account. Let me give you a little bit of background in church history about this. Simon the Cyrene, Cyrene Cyrenius or Cyrenes are from North Africa. It's like Tripoli in uh, modern-day Libya, which I know all of you guys have vacationed there from time to time. Okay? The Cyrene population of Jews was so heavy that in Jerusalem, there's actually a Cyrenian synagogue that existed for like Passover and stuff. So when people came from Cyrene, they were there. It later would become a center of the early church in church history. This guy is called to, to come and take his cross because nobody volunteers to help Jesus. Listen, Jesus volunteered to take your cross when nobody else would volunteer to take his. He ain't volunteering. He's plucked from the crowd to carry this cross. In church history, Rufus and Alexander and their mother all became believers in church history. If you remember from our early start in the Gospel of Mark, John Mark is writing this first and foremost to Rome, to Roman Christians. Church history has Rufus, Alexander, and Simon moving and being a part of the church in Rome. Church history would go further. Now, this isn't the Bible, so take it or leave it. Take it with a maybe. It says that the Apostle Paul was adopted by this family. You know, not literally adopted. Adopted the way that, you know, some people come over to your house and open the fridge without asking. You know what I'm saying? That they loved the Apostle Paul. Let me say this. Rufus's name is only mentioned one other place in the Bible. Which book do you think it is? Romans. Paul says, when he goes to greet the believers in Rome, he says, greet Rufus. Why talk about Rufus and Alexander here? Because these, God, John Mark is writing this to Rome. The people receiving this letter... They knew Rufus and Alexander. Otherwise, it makes no sense. If I say um, to, to Dave, I say, greet Noah who is in your house. You're like, there's no Noah here. You know, like, he would know who that is. See, this isn't mythology. This is eyewitness accounts. If anybody had any questions about this, they could go to Rufus in Rome and ask him what happened with Jesus. If you're a non-believer that believes the Bible was all made up, what do you do with this kind of historical information, first-person accounts? It's fascinating, isn't it? Rufus and Alexander makes, you just think that's a throwaway. But it's actually evidence that these people are at Rome and the people that would have saw the crucifixion of Jesus. So he comes in and he carries this cross up to a place that you're probably familiar with the name of, Golgotha. In Latin, we, we, the name is Calvary in Latin. That's why if you have churches that are named Calvary, they're actually named the Latin version of Golgotha, which means place of the skull. This location is critical for us to understand what Jesus is doing. One of the earliest accounts of this location, Mount Moriah, this account in Jerusalem, is the fact that Abraham, the patriarch, before the laws that talk about tithing and giving and all that stuff, before Moses ever writes the law, Abraham offers a tithe to this cat named Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews is going to talk about that. His name, Melchizedek, means the king of righteousness. And it says that he's the king of a place called Salem or peace. He's a king of righteousness that's the king of peace? What's that all about? And that 
you honor people with tithes that are greater than yourself. Abraham, who's considered the great father of the faith, has this guy that he gives tithes and offerings to before the law of Moses ever commands it. That's wild. And you know where he does it at? Same place. There's another king of righteousness who's the king of peace, who's not offering tithes or receiving tithes. He's offering himself. He's the prince of peace. A lot of people believe that the appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Let's go, go another one. Abraham goes to offer his son Isaac, if you've ever heard that story before. And they go up into the mount. Which mountain? This mountain. Same place. And Isaac carries the wood to his own sacrifice. Questions his father. Father, where is the sacrifice? That's the, that's the key question of that whole account. Where is the sacrifice? Abraham's answer is critical. The Lord himself, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. And some hundreds of years later, the Lord provided for himself the lamb. It says in that account in the Old Testament that there was a ram caught in the thicket. Y'all remember that? That God provides the ram so that Isaac goes free. Inside of Isaac is the whole people of God that are yet to come. God provides a ram so the people of God can go free. Puts the ram in a thicket of thorns. And yet, now we come to the gospel and Jesus is wrapped in a crown of thorns so that the people of God, the church, can go free. Do you see that these accounts are all rolling out a red carpet that you might see Jesus. I'll go one more. David takes a census he shouldn't have because he's like a megachurch pastor. It's all about numbers. And so he gets in trouble. God curses him and says, you get to choose your punishment, which by the way is like next level parent. You know, like if you're ever parenting, you're like, you can either take this punishment or that punishment. And David's like, how about neither? Um, What's curious about David's response is that he feels so guilty about what he, as a leader, has done to curse the people of God that he offers himself as the king. He says, instead of cursing the people, let me, the king, be cursed in their place. Then he buys a mountain, right, and offers a lamb there, back to this whole lamb thing. Jesus, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. His son Solomon is going to take that land purchase on that hill. And guess what he's going to build there? The temple. And guess what they sacrifice at the temple? You don't have to be great with the Old Testament. But just guess lamb right here. All of these accounts. Location, location, location. All of these, same place. Jesus The Lamb of God has now come there to take away the sin of the world. It says that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh as he was falling down. This can work as um, to sedate him like a narcotic, but Jesus refused it. There will be wine vinegar offered on the cross, which will be a disrespectful offering to him there. Once they get him to the cross and they pin him up there, they will strip him of his clothes naked. And I don't know how comfortable, I don't know if you're French here and how comfortable you feel just walking around naked. But imagine the people that you care most about seeing you naked in the middle of town. Your family, your friends, respected leaders. Think of the shame that you'd feel there. If you've ever had a surgery 
and you woke up and you're wearing a paper napkin and you're not wearing clothes that you came in with, little fear strikes you, doesn't it? It's like that's a power move by the hospital to let you know you can go nowhere without them. <laughs> Women, for this reason, were crucified facing the cross most often. Women oftentimes weren't crucified, but when they were, they would make them face the cross. Men would face outward. And a lot of times we think of the cross really high up in the air. Sometimes it's depicted that way in art. But they ain't trying to waste all that wood and do all that stuff. Oftentimes the cross was eye level, maybe a little bit higher. Why? So they could mock the person. You could come by and treat them like the village idiot. You could throw slurs at What are they going to do? They can't jump off of there. They would nail nine inch plus something similar to railroad spikes into the wrist, hands, some of the most, and the feet, some of the most sensitive nerve centers in the whole body. And they would pin the person there and mock them. It says in this account, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 22, that they gambled for Jesus' clothes. Jesus is dying on the cross. A lot of times you think, oh, they gambled after he was dead. They don't care about him. In front of Jesus as he's dying for the sins of the world is Roman soldiers taking their executioner's right to whatever his leftover things were and they're sports betting on it. They come to Jesus and they, they mock him. He, he, he saved others. But he can't save himself. And that's the accusation. What's interesting about that is that they acknowledge that Jesus saved other people. Right? That's interesting. They saw the blind receive their sight. They heard about Lazarus raised from the dead. What about Jairus' daughter? <coughs> he saved others. But now... He got something that's too big for him. If you're truly the Christ, the king, save yourself. They mock him. <coughs> Family, if Jesus would have listened to the mockers, he would have never saved you. There's a rule here that there are mockers in your life that just want to tear you down that you can't listen to. There are haters in your life that if you listen to them, you will not fulfill the purpose of God for your life. Do you hear me? There are fools who got diarrhea of the mouth, and all they do is run it. And if you listen to them, you will never take up your cross and follow Jesus. There are people that deserve nothing more than the silent treatment. Because if they're getting in the way of your purposes in God, the most holy thing you can do is turn a deaf ear and keep taking your cross. Amen? One of the things that's hard for a lot of our people pleasers in here, you give people who love you and are committed to you and who speak truth to you, you give them and people who hate you and want to stop you, equal amount of listening in your life. Not everybody should get the same listening in your life. Some people should have access to say things to you, and you should regard it and count it weighty, and some people can say stuff to you, and it should be like water off of your back. Amen or oh me. Jesus does not 
does not stop simply because they mock him. And I found that really interesting for American Christianity that is coming under soft persecution. I described it as the persecution in America is death by 10,000 cuts. They ain't trying to behead you. They just trying to mock you until you shut up. Right? They're not trying to burn you at the stake. They're trying to laugh at you until you quit your job. Jesus doesn't quit. And it says in verse 34, I'll pick up some of the things about darkness and some of the other things about how he ends his life in the, the entry into the resurrection next week. But I want to look at this, this last thing that Jesus, one of the last things that Jesus does. It says that he cried out in the ninth hour with a loud voice. Loud, that's a descriptor. Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Semenethi. Nailed it. This is originally in Hebrew, but he quotes it in an Aramaic more common language that people there would have understood, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why am I in this position forsaken of God? Why? That is a curious thing to quote. He's quoting Bible, by the way, so I guess he got his Awana verses, right? He quotes the Bible from us and wants us looking at this Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Why? That's the thing that he's going to cry. Do you realize that people on the cross die of suffocation? That in order to get a breath, they have to pull themselves up on their own nerves and on the, with their back cheese grater against the wooden cross. they got to pull themselves up to take a breath. And of all the things that he could take a breath in order to shout, he's going to shout this Bible verse. This one. He lifted and sucked in air and wanted to cry something here at the finish line. He wants this question right in your lap. Why has God forsaken Jesus the Son? Why? Ponder that. Why? Why all this blood? Why all this pain? Why am I who is without sin, forsaken as though I'm a sinner. Forsaken is what God does to sinners. He forsakes them. Your sins deserve to be forsaken. That's a descriptor of hell. Hell is a place where you are forsaken of God. Why? Why am I doing this? How you answer, church, that question changes your eternity. You are here at this question at the crossroads of God's decisive act in history. A crossroad, not a roundabout that you go down here by the dollar store and can't after six times around. Crossroads, left. Right. Which way are you going? Look at the billboard that God has raised and make a decision. Why did he do that? God has sent his son who has taken your forsakenness on the cross, 
We have gathered here today, and it's not accidental that you are here. I have preached to you what the Bible says and told you the truth. Now you stand here at a crossroads with a decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you answer the why with for me? Why did Jesus do that? Jesus did that for me. That I may not be forsaken, but accepted. Why the blood that I might be atoned for? That my sins might be forgiven? That I might have new life in him? Is that your answer? Or are you going to say, I don't know. Are you going to say, I love my sins. And I'm going to die in them, refusing to turn to this lamb and be saved. How are you going to answer the why? Nobody can answer it for you. No one. Maybe you said here, last thing, maybe you said here and you think, I got 10 more years, I got 10 more days. And you gamble on the patience of God. No man knows they're going to walk out this door and get hit by a Texan on 501. Nobody knows. How gracious is God towards sinners like you? It cost him more to redeem you than it did to create you. It cost him more to redeem you than it did to create you. It's like those gearheads that restore cars and end up paying $4 million to restore a car they could have bought a brand new car for 30000 Sometimes it costs more to restore it than it does to buy it new. God's that gracious that he paid a higher price to redeem you than he did to create you. How good is his patience? I'll tell you how good it is. His patience is so good that it took him longer to destroy Jericho than it did to create the whole world. He was more patient with Jericho in taking longer to do that act of judgment that they deserve than he was in creating the whole universe. Let me tell you how, God, how gracious and patient God has been with you to make this decision. Here's how gracious and patient God is with you. You made it to this room one more time. That's how gracious God has been with you. Because not one of us sinners deserved another chance to hear the gospel. How foolish is it that we think we deserve another opportunity to hear the gospel when there's so many other people who haven't even heard it once. So I'm done. And you stand at a crossroads of God's decisive act in history and you've seen what he has done in order to preach his love to you from the pulpit of the cross. How will you respond? If you're a sinner here who has never made the decision to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God to take away your sins, I would invite you with all of my heart and I would plead with you to repent of your sins and to believe the gospel that God came, He died on the cross for your sins, He buried them and rose from the grave, giving you new life. And one day in eternity, He's going to be with you forever. If you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will die in your sins and be forsaken. 
If you're a Christian here today, I want you to revisit the cross and maybe the sins this week that you see him nailed to. Maybe for you to answer the question, why was Jesus forsaken? You can answer it clearly that he was forsaken for me. And you can remember how much Jesus has forgiven in your life. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, we got murderers and liars and thieves and sexually immoral. On earth, we got chaos and evil and genocide and rape. We got every flavor of evil that the devil our flesh and sin could invent. But in heaven, God, you got perfect righteousness, holiness. God, you got peace. And so would you bring heaven to earth here? Would you conquer sin in hearts and minds of my friends here and in my brothers and sisters here? Would you instill in us, Holy Spirit, faith, that lets us see that the cross was for me. God, would you cause us to be able to cry, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you drive that deep places of our soul down to our very bones? Would you change us? I pray for whatever repentance needs to happen here. Holy Spirit, God, don't let anybody leave here until they've done work and done business with you. Convict where you need to convict. Draw men and women to yourself. Save for your mighty and glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and respond? Um, Now for a benediction. Um, may you gaze at the wonderful cross, preach the power of the cross, and live near to the cross this week. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.